Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. This week we have a little short episode where we respond to the first question that we received about the story of Nicaea. We will be back again this week as we discuss Athanasius' De Incarnatione, but we wanted to get out this response to our first question because it was a little bit longer than we expected it to be, so we made it as one separate episode and wanted to get that out for everybody to hear. We received a few more comments, and we will record our responses to those this week, so they should be coming out possibly next week. But for now, here is our answer to the question about the story of Nicaea. Please check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology, and please place your comments there that you have about any theological question. Uh, also, please review and rate us on iTunes. It'll really help our listenership. Thanks for listening. Um, okay, so first thing that we need to do is um, we put out a question on Facebook and on the last podcast asking for people to submit their questions about the podcast. My sister asked me if we would take any theological question, which I told her yes, but we only got one. Um, yeah, I read that one and I prepared some stuff, so. Okay, well, so did I. All right, so good. Um, so I'll read. So Aaron Burke. Okay, so Aaron Burke says, I have a follow-up question on the episode. You guys did a great job enacting the debate. You hammered out the theology nicely, but you, could you tell it to me like a story, i.e., how many bishops were there? How long did the council last? How did they debate the issues? Did they break up into groups or just argue on an open floor? And what do we know about how it happened logistically, not just theologically? So this is the question. Um, I was reading a book by Rowan Williams on Arius, and he did a little reconstruction of the history. So much that I looked up on it came from uh, Rowan Williams. But if, if Tom, Tom said he's looked up some stuff on it. So, I, you know, do you want to throw in a few things, Tom, and then I can add uh, to yours or – no, why don't you start? You read, I mean, with Rowan Williams, he's a more, I mean, he's a more thorough source than I encountered. Uh, so, a lot of my stuff comes from, uh, comes from old stuff that I remember from taking classes in school, but go ahead. Yeah, so um, what Rowan Williams does is he actually traces the problems that were brewing in Alexandria over um, the Arius's ascension um, as a... Uh, as a preacher, basically, as a teacher. And it appears that Arius is more of an academic than a churchman. And it seems that he kind of wanted maybe to, to be able to explore a little bit um, theologically how, how the father and the son related to each other. Um, and, uh, yeah, he had a few people on his side, including Eusebius of Nicomedia. But he by no means had the majority of people in Alexandria on his side. Uh, but he did have a small uh, support. Um, and Con uh, Constantine was upset over the disagreement in Alexandria in the east over this uh, the theology that was being put forth by Arius um, because there was, yeah there was just there was just this disagreement. Arius seems to think that he he was sort of fine. Um, he was in his own school and and he seems to look at it maybe more like a philosophical school and then. Um, Ath uh, and then Athanasius, as well as um, Constantine um, and some of the others, were more worried about the aspects of the church, like what goes on uh, in the congregations. And so how are they going to handle this guy who seems to be putting forth a theology that doesn't jive with what the majority of churches are teaching um, in what we've been calling the regula fide, the rule of faith? Um, and basically this is you know, this is going to be a big issue in the theology of Athanasius 
um, which we're going to discuss in a later episode. Uh, but um, yeah, but basically, so uh, Constantine asks Athanasius or asks Arius to submit um, some interpretations of a sermon, uh, or for, like basically a sermon, some interpretations of scripture. Um, and and he, you know, uh, we have from his letters, um, and actually not this interpretation, um, but we have some of his letters where his theology says that there was a time when the sun was not. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so they all gather. It appears there are different numbers for the number of people there. Um, pr- like, you know, uh, it seems that Eusebius, um, thought that there were, uh, 270 bishops present. Uh, Athanasius says settles for 300. Um, Rowan Williams thinks in recent research, it's probably around 200, um, people that were there. And there was maybe, uh, 10 bishops, um, in the total that actually supported oh, Arius. Oh, 10 bishops that supported Arius. Sorry about that. I, I thought you were saying, I, I got confused. The, um, when you said 10, 10 bishops total, because, so what I'd read is that there were, I mean, obviously debates as to how many, like you said, but the official stance of the church has always been that there was 318 bishops and that those bishops all came with entourages which would have included priests and deacons and that overall there was over 1500 people present, but the 300 bishops, but yeah, I've heard, I've heard the argument that there was more like 200 as well. And I think, I think some of the earlier sources say like 250, but 318 is the official, the official reckoning of the church. Yeah. Um, And it appears that they just would. uh, Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not exactly even sure precisely where in Nicaea, they gather um, at what kind of um, basilica, um, but it oh, appears it was, that they... It was, it, was at Constant, it was at Constantine, one of Constantine's palaces there in, okay. uh, like a summer resort home. Um, uh, and it appears Eusebius of Caesarea had his own um, creed, basically, written. Arius had his own creed written. It appears that they were writing statements of belief, and then there was just debate. Uh, about which one should be accepted. I mean, so I guess as far as logistics are concerned, it would sort of be like you wrote a statement of what you believed, um, and then there was basically a vote um, at, on which one represented the majority teaching of the church. My understanding was is that they were bringing their actual bapti- their actual versions of the regula fide, their, the, the things that they would use in their churches um, as kind of confessional points. And I, I don't know how many of them were actually looked at. Officially, Eusebius says only his own was was used. That he basically submitted it as a as a rule of faith. And then, so of course, now this is Eusebius speaking, and he's he's obviously kind of fluffing his own feathers. But the way he said it was basically, as they gather together and tr- they're trying to hammer this stuff out. Um, he submits his as, hey, what do you think of this emperor? And the emperor reads it and goes, it's fantastic. And, and he says, everybody looks at it and goes, wow, it's wonderful. This is amazing. This is what we should adopt. And, and then he says, and then just a couple of changes were made to kind of uh, emphasize the unity of, of the Godhead and the oneness and the essence and so forth. And that, so that, that's what Eusebius says. Although I've read and heard that it was actually somebody else's, it was actually the creed uh, that was used in Jerusalem that was uh, or the, the, the bishopric of Jerusalem that was used 
uh, as kind of the foundation or the base. I don't know where they got that. That's just what I read. Yeah. The, I mean, as far as like, you know, the one, the one other point that usually comes up around Christmas time is St. Nicholas um, is actually known for having punched Arius in the face. Um, and that happened at the Council of Nicaea. Um, yeah, I, yeah, he's, yeah, supposedly he's like, yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorites. I love that. Um, so. <laughs> but outside of that, it was apparently, uh, well, you know, and one other point to make about like how lively the debate was, um, you know, Constantine forces Arius into exile and then later in life basically welcomes him back into the church. And we are going to be discussing the theology of Athanasius for the next couple of episodes. And this is where Athanasius um, start, goes into one of his first exiles is over his frustration that basically Constantine welcomes him back in, um, mm-hmm. even though Arius is clearly against his theology. So the debates, um, although maybe heated and there is this sort of story about St. Nicholas um, – you know, apparently it's it's not like the the debate wasn't even too great that Constantine wouldn't even well you know at the at the end of the day after several years welcomes uh, Arius back. Yeah, I have a couple of things to just kind of add about the proceedings and kind of the events that what happened if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, so I just noticed a couple of questions. I, I read I read the the message. I just had forgotten a few things, but just to kind of answer some basic questions that uh, um, I can't remember. What was his name again? Our listener, uh, Aaron Burke that Aaron had, I should remember that's close to former president or former vice president of the United States, Aaron Burke um, that Aaron had um, one. He asked about like the length that was a month long, almost exactly a month. It went from, uh, from May 20th to June 19th of three twenty-five, uh, And the, you know, the, the, the form that it took supposedly, and, and again, we don't know exactly. They're kind of, you have to kind of piece it together. A lot of it comes from the narratives that Eusebius recounts. And he was present, so he is a good source, being a historian. But Eusebius is kind of known to, as I said a, a bit ago, to kind of make himself a look, look a little better than he perhaps really was. But essentially, the bishops would gather together in a chamber and hammer these things out. Uh, you know, through discussion. It was just, you know, people would put forward a thesis and then there would be debate over that particular issue. And I should add, many other things were being debated within the chambers than just the issue of the Trinity. For instance, there was a debate over when Easter should take place. Uh, Some argued that it should take place on the day of the Jewish Passover, and some argued that it should take place on a Sunday. And so the Council of Nicaea actually hammered out the formula once and for all by which we determine uh, when Easter ought to be celebrated, which for listeners out there who are curious, it's always the first Sunday following the first full moon, which comes after the spring equinox, which is why Easter changes all the time. Uh, they, they hammered out some debates about schisms that were going on in the church and also some, some practical things about just governing the church. But obviously the main issue was the Arian controversy. And most, one of the things that that Eusebius really emphasized was the unity within the building, that everybody was on board with the Nicene Creed with the exception of two people. There were two people who refused at the end to to sign the Nicene Creed and who stood steadfastly 
in support of Arias. So having said that, I, you know, Chad referenced that you see me some Nicomedia supported Arias. There were a bunch of people who supported him at the beginning. But the way it's framed is, is that once it came out, what Arias really believed, like his full teaching on the subject, that his supporters began to dwindle, that little by little they began to just pull away from him, so that at the end there were just two guys left with him who were holding the banner. And and I should add, there's debate about whether Arius was actually even there. He was not a bishop, so he couldn't he wasn't supposed to be in the room for the debate. Um but he could have been present amongst the presbyters and no doubt they could have called him in at any time. So the story of Nicholas striking him, which is a, a pretty uh, it's a fun story for anybody who's yeah, you know, been involved in the or who's who's done research on it. Uh, some people argue that couldn't have happened, but he could have been present for sure. Uh, but all that to say, there is debate about whether or not he was actually present. But there were two bishops who took up his cause. And at the end of it all, um, ultimately, everybody but those two bishops signs the agreement, basically lend their consent to the Nicene Creed, agree that that God is to be defined as one being, um, uh, they, well, not just one, it, I guess it doesn't go into that language, but it defines Jesus as true God from true God of one essence, that key word that we've talked about in the past, homoousius, with the Father. And because those two bishops would not consent, Constantine exiled them and Arius to Illyria, which is up in the Balkan region. So at the end of the day, there was massive agreement officially um, with only two dissenters, and that established the law for the church. However, there were arguably, I think most people think this, a number of bishops who just didn't want to get in trouble politically, so they kept their their approval of Arius secret. They kind of kept it buried, like Eusebius of Nicomedia in particular. We keep mentioning him because he was a, a really important uh, figure at that time in the church, and he would go on to have huge impact and influence in the imperial family. Um, but it seems pretty clear that Eusebius of Nicomedia, and also just so you guys remember, if you guys forget, Eusebius of Nicomedia is not the guy who wrote the, the church history. That is Eusebius of Caesarea. But Eusebius of Nicomedia and his kind of gang, uh, they seem to kind of keep their feelings secret and bide their time. And And as Chad said, Towards the end of his life, Constantine took a, like a softer posture towards Arius, invited him back into the empire. And, of course, eventually Constantine's son and successor in the east, Constantius, would actually be a full-blown Arian. And there would be a time when Arianism would become the dominant uh, church in, in, in the empire. So, you know, a lot of, lot of interesting stuff coming from that. Another crazy thing to think about is how the tides had turned by the Council of Nicaea for the church. Uh, it's often said that their fees, their travel fees were paid for. They were able to, these bishops were invited by the emperor to travel there for free. And some of them uh, were some of the old, it's legend at least, is that some of them were the old confessors during the persecutions and still bore marks of torture and things that had been done to them by previous emperors. And yet now they were being invited by the emperor. It was paid for. And afterward, they basically celebrated and they had food together with the emperor. 
And so it's kind of crazy to remember that it was also like kind of a, kind of a huge deal because, you know, legend has it that basically some of the people there literally bore physical reminders of how the empire once treated them. And now like everything had changed. So it's a crazy part of the story to think about. I wouldn't say that that's legend. I mean, those guys, those guys would have been persecuted fairly. I mean, you know, the great persecution ends, I think in 306. Does that sound right, Chad? Yeah, I was going to say a little later, but I that that's, I mean that that sounds right. It could be a little later. I mean, I can check right here. But, but I, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. It's certainly within within the lifetime. And Eusebius himself says yeah. that the confessors came in first with bearing the marks. And Eusebius is there. I mean, he's present. Right. And he says, and they were given a seat of honor, and 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 their opinions on the subject were greatly listened to. And it, I should add. That it seems that the confessors, at least according to Eusebius, were deeply in agreement with the Nicene Creed. I should also point out that all disagreement with what Nicaea determined came from the East. The West was fully on board. Um, the Western half of the church was fully on board with Nicaea. All of the disagreement came out of the Greek-speaking East. So, Well, and there's, <laughs> yeah, there, there's some conversation to be had as to exactly why that was the case. Um, and the only writings that we have from the Syriac further east uh, are Ephraim the Syrian, and Ephraim the Syrian is clearly against the theology of Arius. So there's uh, theology, you know, being done in a different language called Syriac that's against Arius, and then there's theology done by um, Ephraim, or by, excuse me, by Hilary of Poitiers in Latin, two people of which I have written about. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, it also appears that uh, Hillary didn't fully understand uh, where where the church was headed. He, he writes uh, in the, the, the 350s, um, and so it's somewhat after Nicaea, uh, but before uh, before the theology, like Gregory of Nazianz and, uh, and, and Gregory of Nyssa, before 381, uh, Constantinople, when, when the creed is finalized in the form that we know it, um, there's some debate about whether or not Hillary actually knew the direction that the church was going. But the, the most that the West seems to know about the debates going on in the East come from Hillary is one of our main sources. Um, and, and there is, uh, you know, there is a little bit of, of confusion as to whether or not the West even fully understood the debates. Yeah, that's I, the, fair enough. We will be back later this week with Athanasius's De Incarnazione. Thanks for listening.